This is the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology, covering industry analysis, data, and market forecasting for quantum technology markets worldwide. Now, here's your host, Christopher Bishop. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Quantum Tech Pod. I'm delighted that you're listening. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're sitting on the planet. My guest today is Dr. Eric Holland. He's the Director of Strategic Growth Initiatives in Keysight Technologies Quantum Engineering Solutions Group. Dr. Holland is an experimental and computational physicist with extensive experience bringing quantum technologies from initial concept to working prototypes executed in academia, industry, and national laboratories. Eric's previous roles include serving as Fermilab's Deputy Director of Quantum Technology, as well as as Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory's Chief Quantum Hardware and Application Architect. He also serves on the Quantum Economic Development Consortium's Executive Steering Committee, which is where I first met him. Eric holds a PhD from Yale University and a BA in Physics from St. Anselm College. His company, Keysight Technologies, explores leading-edge test and measurement science to enable innovators to create the technologies that define the future. Keysight Quantum is continuing that tradition. With a rich history of innovation spanning over 80 years and with more than 1,700 U.S. and foreign patents issued or pending, Keysight today serves customers in more than 100 countries around the globe with a diverse workforce of more than 13,000 employees. Welcome, Eric, and thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on today, Chris. So, Eric, I always like to start the podcast by asking my guests to share a bit about their own personal quantum journey. And my objective is twofold, certainly to give our audience a sense of what you did before you joined Keysight but more broadly to orient our listeners to the fact that there are many ways and various paths that people have taken to get into the field of quantum information science. So if you could, please share with our listeners a bit about your background and path so far, maybe where you grew up, where you went to school, what you studied, certainly any insight into your experiences at the two national labs, as well as other organizations where you worked or did research. So I grew up in Southern New Hampshire. So depending where you are in the globe, you may or may not know uh, where that is. I know so, where that is. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have no doubt that you do, uh, but I've <laughs> met a fair amount of Europeans and those in Asia Pacific that uh, aren't familiar with New Hampshire. Uh-huh. So it's a state, it, it's about an hour north of Boston, um, very rural area. So where I grew up, there were no sidewalks, there were no street lights, uh, there wasn't a store. Oh my. Um, so it was, it was a unique area. Uh, my dad was an IT guy for the state of New Hampshire, uh, and my mom was a cashier at a local grocery store. Growing up, I always had a passion for math and science and frankly didn't know that you could make a career out of it. So some of my favorite childhood memories, a lot of kids have coloring books growing up. I had math books, so there were (laughs) math books that existed that you could solve uh, equations and then get numbers and use them in puzzles or uh, use that to like create a, a drawing. Like if you had a grid, it would tell you what numbers to connect the lines to. Um, so from an early age, I was very much geared towards math and science and not not art. <laughs> um, so from there, uh, went to uh, San Anselm College. It's in New Hampshire. Uh, that was my undergrad university. It's a small liberal arts school. Um, it at the time was run by Benedictine monks. So it was common to have them around campus uh, because that's where the monastery was, you know, talk to them at lunch or dinner. Um, 
and some of them even taught classes. I really enjoyed my experience there. Uh, the small class sizes let me get, not get, but develop a close relationship with the physics faculty. Yeah. Uh, and that was something that early on really helped cultivate my, my early career journey in, into science. So at this point, I was still kind of coming to grips with that you could make a career out of being a scientist or uh, anything kind of like that. That was all kind of new to me. So they really mm -hmm. helped guide me in that process. Um, pretty quickly, I realized I wanted to go to grad school. At the time, I wanted to be a physics professor. Through, let's say, good luck, uh, did an internship at Jefferson Lab in Newport News, Virginia. So that was a nuclear physics lab and got to use that as, uh, let's say, the jumping off point for me applying to grad school. Uh, was accepted to Yale fortunately on the first physics club. So it's pretty common at universities to have uh, a weekly seminar series uh, for Yale, it's the physics club. Uh, Rob Shokoff gave the, the kickoff lecture on quantum information processing with superconducting circuits. And I had been exposed to quantum computing during my undergrad at the time. I, I can't say that I loved it in the initial exposure. Uh, it, Everything was very much um, kind of theoretical computer scientists, proving algorithms, everything about lemmas. Uh, I'm more of a hands-on person. So for me, it, it was interesting, but not something that I could say that I had a passion about. Um, but then when Rob gave his talk, it was all about how do you make an electrical circuit be quantum? How do you demonstrate that it's quantum? It was not not uh, treating quantum as some great mystery, but instead was treating it as something that, you know, has provable tests that you can make to see if it's quantum or not. Hmm. Uh, and it was very pragmatic and um, just seemed to make a lot of sense to me. Uh, I had always enjoyed electrical circuits, uh, the classes and labs, because it just kind of made sense to me from a reasoning standpoint. And it really helped me understand quantum mechanics better. And then in terms of the companies that I worked at, so by chance, every institution that I've been employed by has always been successful in a different field for a very long time and is dipping its toe into quantum. So I've had the great experience to learn from organizations that have been successful in very mature fields and have that shape my perspectives on where quantum needs to grow and evolve into uh, to get there. So to be more practical, you know, you have Lawrence Livermore National Lab that has been doing high performance computing since the 1950s, uh, one of the first customers for HPC. Um, so getting that insight into, uh, you know, what an HPC facility looks like, how HPC does business and, and reasons with uh, the future. They have really long planning cycles. And that was also where a majority of my, my funding came from, uh, helped out a lot, uh, Fermilab with high energy physics, which has been also going on for better than 70 years, hmm. uh, and the semiconductor industry, which is, uh, well known for being very successful. So I like that you reference you working at companies that have been in, uh, sort of technology businesses or activities for a long time. So I want to, I want to lead off our conversation here by asking you a somewhat philosophical question, and I hope you'll indulge me. So certainly Keysight has a wide-ranging portfolio offering technology-based products and solutions across many verticals, 
and has for many years. Given that the company was founded in 1939 to make and sell an audio oscillator, and for those of you who are who don't know, Keysight was once part of Agilent, which emerged from Hewlett Packard, right? What do you think Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard would think of the company having a quantum engineering solutions group in 2022? And how did this come to be? This group get created at Keysight. Oh, um, yeah. So you ask you ask a couple really great questions in terms of my opinion of what Bill and Dave would think. I think that they would be very enthralled with with uh, the quantum engineering solutions group. Um, so when I worked at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, I had the good fortune to work with, not work, but uh, a common scenario would be I'd get contacted that some retired um, engineer with a clearance wanted to get up to speed on on quantum. And then I'd be able to host them for a day and kind of do a deep dive on you know, the is and is not on quantum, walk them through the lab. Hmm. Uh, and I would say that my consistent experience was the engineer would usually start off with a bit of an apprehension on quantum. But then once they saw, at least for superconducting circuits, that you can really just use RF diagnostics to get you 90% of the way there, that they went from apprehensive to very comfortable and then getting really excited hmm. uh, because a lot of what you're able to do with superconducting circuits is something that kind of was in the far field of, of microwave engineering. So I think Bill and Dave would be very excited. Um, you know, I would imagine that they probably would be doing things like wanting to go visit quantum researchers to see this in action and would be really excited and that there would be a lot of, uh, exuberance about this. Yeah. Um, so that's one part. And then how we came to be is kind of, that HP legacy, if you will. Uh, so I haven't lived it, but from what I've been told by the people that have been at the company 30, 40s, 50 years mm -hmm. has been uh, that a kind of standard HP practice was high level management, having strong relationship all the way down through the individual contributor level. level. Wow. Um, so where the quantum engineering solutions group really grew out of uh, was, um, let's see, in 2016, Keysight acquired a company called Signadyne, hmm. and they made arbitrary waveform generators and digitizers. Uh, and the company was founded by Mark Almendros, who's in our quantum engineering solutions team. And Mark did his PhD in Spain. And really, this company grew out of uh, filling a need for the iron trap community. So um, where this kind of had a nice overlap was in a need that Keysight had in wireless communications and 4G test. So Signadyne was acquired and, uh, you know, it was, if you kind of think back to uh, 2016 and earlier, right? Uh, typically, if you're doing an acquisition, you spend at least a year, if not longer, looking into it. Right. So starting around 2014, 2015, looking very hard at acquiring Signadyne. And it kind of had that neat upside that it was fulfilling a present day need for Keysight for um, you know some of the proprietary timing and synchronization engines um, used in FPGAs uh, for 4G test, uh, but also having that neat upside of, of quantum. So I would say that that's what got quantum on the radar of um, 
people like my current boss, the senior vice president of uh, emerging technologies, Jim Paolo Tardoli, uh, as well as our current CEO, Satish. So um, not hmm. CEO at the time, but recently promoted in May. Um, they very quickly got a, an interest on it and quickly formed a team around that. So one thing that I've liked about Keysight is that as a company, quick to action, uh, quick to, let's say, deploy resources to investigate things. So where this all kind of grew out of was, hey, you know, Quantum could be an interesting fit for Keysight. Uh, and then, you know, quickly put a few people on it. And it was pretty apparent that a lot of our solutions were already something that quantum researchers were using. So for instance, um, my first measurements were done on a Hewlett Packard vector network analyzer. Uh, so for me, it was not a surprise that Keysight had a strong fit in quantum. Yeah. Um, but as a company, it's something like, you know, when you have uh, this year's probably going to be around 6 billion in revenue, mm. uh, sometimes the smaller stuff gets lost in the cracks. Cool. That's kind of the the origin of um, yeah. through an acquisition and Keysight's made several acquisitions and it's eight-year history, got us started into quantum. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your perspective on Bill and Dave, for sure. I'm, I was looking forward to hearing your response. Um, and then how it came to be. Fascinating. And I think, you know, big picture perspective for people in the quantum space, right? Acquisitions, technologies that are leverageable with existing portfolios at a meta level, right? So. Yeah. I, I really believe that that's going to be something that... So a common question that I get asked is what quantum technology I think is going to be the winner. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't gotten to a place where I, it's obvious to me that one will win out. I understand yeah. anybody making a quantum technology will say that theirs is the right one. Uh -huh. um, but when I look at quantum technologies as a market, I really believe that the winning technology in hindsight, you'll be able to look at a lot of leverage from other fields. So it could be wireless communication. It could be laser engraving. Yeah. If you think about uh, neutral atoms, some of the laser technology that they have has overlap with high power laser engravers. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's going to be one of those things that it's not obvious to me at the moment that there's going to be such a huge financial driver that you can reinvent, not reinvent, you can innovate uh, everything that's needed for a cost-effective quantum technology. No, I agree. Uh, let's talk about quantum control systems. So one of your main offerings, right? Um, it's described as the world's first fully digital quantum control solution. Uh, the M5000 series is what it's called, right? It forms the backbone for the Keysight quantum control system and is described as having, uh, providing, quote, a precise measurement instrumentation solution enabling researchers to engineer and scale superior systems. I read it's offered in two 10 and 20 qubit web standard configurations. Can you tell our listeners more about this solution? So this is a, a key takeaway from, from our conversation today that I'm hoping your audience has is that uh, the importance of providing feedback to companies in the quantum supply chain. So our journey into our quantum control system or QCS started five years ago. Keysight has its own captive foundry for a lot of uh, high-speed analog components. So we make uh, a wide product portfolio. Uh, supply chain is a big issue that shouldn't shock anybody. Um, I don't know if we're more than two years into the pandemic or kind of towards the end, but supply chain issues should not shock anybody. So 
a long time ago, Keysight invested in uh, Captive Foundry for high-speed critical analog components, as well as invested in a large and very capable high-speed ASIC design team. So in our QCS, what forms the core of that is a Keysight-designed uh, high-speed ASIC uh, that, quite frankly, nobody else has access to. Uh, it's something that is, enables this to be a fully digital system operating in the first Nyquist zone. So that means that it's just playing out things very simply. There aren't really any tricks. The 210 and 20 qubit configurations, that's just because we get a lot of questions from, from customers on trying to get a, right? So like, if you're kind of at the early stages of shopping around, you don't want to do a super detailed configuration to get a sense of uh, what it would look like for something in in your setup. Uh, so we just offered a few on there just so people could quickly get an idea of what it would look like for them. This quantum control system is something that we're really proud of. It's uh, We really expect that it's going to perform in a way that'll substantially help and accelerate the field. Uh, so as I've mentioned, it's a digital system. So it's going to have um, the stability that one needs. So if you think about having a deployed system on a cloud platform, uh, things that those end customers care about is that it's connected and working. I would say other things that are really great about this system is that since it's digital, it's easily scalable. So now rather than trying to synchronize a bunch of analog components, you're instead uh, doing all the frequency and phase calculations exactly numerically, uh, and then just synchronizing them as such. Uh, and I would say the last thing that I'll add into there is one thing that I've enjoyed since coming to Keysight is being able to tour our R&D centers. We have one in Santa Rosa and another one in, in Colorado Springs. We have several throughout the world, uh, but the ones that were involved in making our quantum control system really have a high level of rigor in terms of robust manufacturing that goes into these products. So I would say one thing that kind of stuck with me is I went on a tour to look at uh, kind of almost the prison cell of stuff that it's <laughs> inflicted upon these products <laughs> to make sure that, you know, they're robust against drops, they're robust against high impact collisions, that they aren't putting off horrible uh, radiation, all those things. Uh, and one of the things that I get asked a lot about from customers is, hey, can we just do something quick and dirty for them that doesn't go through all this? And my tour guide looked at me, and at the time I was wearing a Keysight shirt, and he pointed to the logo and he said, that logo is a commitment to engineering excellence. Yeah. So we don't cut corners. We don't put out shoddy products. Yeah. Um, and I would say that that's something that is hard to label on a data sheet, but it's something that just leads to long-term satisfaction. Like if you think about things that you own, you know, at least for me, things that I really love are things that are dependable, uh, that I know day in, day out that they're going to do exactly what I want and that they aren't requiring a lot of babysitting, hand-holding or <laughs> customer nightmare. Yeah. Now that's a great perspective. And again, the theme of sort of leveraging existing you know, robust historical manufacturing capability um, in this new paradigm. I think it's, you know, makes total sense, right? And positions Keystone unique, key, Keysight uniquely. So Eric, let's dig into the quantum portfolio a little bit. Um, let's talk about Labber Quantum. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah. So I read that this software helps the quantum scientist or engineer maximize 
their experimental potential and realize faster results with simple setup, intuitive visualization of results, and then efficient organization of the collected data. So can you tell me more about how this works as well as certainly what maybe languages or libraries LabR requires or supports? How does yeah, uh, so that was something that builds off of the last question. Uh, so our quantum control system, I talked a lot about the hardware. The software is also a very key ingredient. Yeah. So things that we learned about from our previous generation uh, system was that our quantum physicists want to really reason and interact with the hardware at a pulse programming level. What they don't want is something that is closer to assembly code. So to kind of put this at a high level picture for you, yeah. um, our previous generation solution was more offered a very low level of access, which a small number of customers actually wanted. The majority of them wanted a high level pulse programming language. And part of the reason why is just because of the sheer number number of lines of code that would be needed to written to, to, to be successful. So some of the more complicated experiments could be 10,000 lines of code, which is, you know, an iPhone app in terms of level yeah. of difficulty. So now imagine that you're, you know, trying to supply this to a quantum researcher that really they, they have a very simple description in their mind of what they want to do. And it's like, okay, now go make an iPhone app to make this work. Uh, so part of that help drive us to do an acquisition of a company called Labber. So Labber was, and this is part of what you were asking, Labber is through and through Python. So it is, um, it has a Python API as well as all of the, the GUI bindings are done through PyQt libraries. So the user interface that you can see and click is also done via Python. And it was a really great product, and it still is, for general purpose experimentation. So a lot of the background uh, for the kind of customer that you can think of using this is somebody that's an experimental physicist. They have a bunch of odds and ends of, of equipment that they need to cobble together to do a particular experiment. So they need to orchestrate everything to, to work together in a secret in a particular order to demonstrate whatever result they're looking for. So Labber, I would say about a third of the users are people that are doing quantum materials. So they never will have a qubit because they're much more interested in the material science aspect of everything. So for our quantum control system, we really wanted to, well, not wanted to, we put a big emphasis on having less lines of code for our customers to quickly get up to speed and start using the product. So a big part of Labra Quantum, which we released this summer, was coming out with a dedicated pulse programming language. It's in Python. Um, so it's uh, easy to use, uh, very straightforward, and something that we've gotten a lot of positive feedback from, uh, from, from users. Um, so this is an entirely different module from Labra. So the, Acquired Labber had three key modules, and this is a fourth one. Uh, so that's one thing to kind of address because yeah. some people tend to wonder, oh, is this some, how, how different is it? And the answer is it's very different. So Labber, what we acquired was something that was general purpose. It was 
very popular in quantum, but nothing about it was inherently quantum. Whereas the pulse programming uh, Python API that we've come out with is entirely focused around quantum. Great. So I want to ask you about uh, collaboration, right? I'm wondering what goes on, say, between your organization, other parts of the Keysight business. So certainly uh, you have established relationships with many global companies and a long history of offering innovative tech-driven solutions. But curious to know how the Quantum Solutions Group interoperates with different organizations in a company with as wide-ranging a portfolio as Keysight. Can you speak to that? Oh, yeah. Uh, so this is where my background at, in working at institutions that are getting into quantum and are very successful in other fields has really helped me at Keysight. Yeah. Uh, the answer is that there isn't a, a quick org chart that you can look up to to find the answer to all your problems. Uh, in practice, what ends up happening, let's see if I can quickly put it into a few groups. So one is driven by customer or client requests. Yeah. So you can think of it as um, we commonly have big companies or or government contractors that pose the question to the person that they work with, which is, hey, what is Keysight doing in quantum? What do you already have solutions for? And usually what happens is that person uh, is aware of somebody that is engaged in quantum and it eventually makes it way to the quantum engineering solutions group. And then we either meet with uh, their point of contact in Keysight or, or the customer or client directly. So that's one angle. Yeah. Another angle is us looking at future technologies that have high leverage in, in Keysight and working with them. So an example of that is we've been working for about two years with our Pathwave software solutions group. So they're pretty similar to to QES, just much larger and more successful. Uh, they make a lot of software products that are widely consumed by the RF community. So they have electronic design automation tools that help RF designers create um, all of their RF uh, equipment and, and, and designs. So yeah. if you can think of like a Keysight, if you think about Keysight, uh, we make a lot of high-performance RF electronic equipment. And part of how we get to do that quickly and efficiently is by having great simulation tools. So we have great RF simulation tools, and those are starting to be pretty popular in quantum. So there's a lot of efforts that re require RF simulation. We've recently hired into our PSS organization uh, a planner for quantum, so Dr. Mohammed Hassan, and he's uh, quickly finishing up a, a collaboration with Kizkit Metal, as well as um, driving quickly to market uh, a quantum-specific design tool. Thank you for sharing that perspective. Yeah, the two ways that interaction is generated, that's that's great. Um, and, it, and the logical segue is the inevitable question, I call it a $64,000 question, although many of my listeners are too young to remember that TV show from the 50s and 60s, um, clients, um, without sharing any proprietary information, can you give us a sense of, you know, examples of current clients using QCS? And I always like to ask more specifically, are there certain verticals where your quantum solutions are gaining traction over others? Great question. So we went public with our quantum control system in, uh, in June, end of June. 
uh, leading into that, we had three early adopters. So three clients that before we were even public, before we even had a demo system to show them what it was that they were buying, that they took the leap with Keysight uh, to, uh, to adopt it. And so far we've had one that we can talk about publicly. So it's a French quantum startup called Alice and Bob. Uh, it's superconducting qubit base. Uh, really it's um, based around bosonic modes. And uh, we recently had an event in France where they talked about their early experience with the product. Uh, as the fall starts to, to kick into higher gear, we'll have the other two speak at other events um, to kind of talk about it. Uh, so far, people have been quite happy. I would say the immediate reaction before they even use it is being very pleased with how compact the solution is. So typically what we're experiencing is we're delivering something that is trying to think of good dimension. It's kind of like an old boombox size, <laughs> cool. um, which is replacing something that used to take a full rack. So something that was, you know, over six feet tall and, and really deep. So they're really loving how compact this is. And the reason why it's able to be compact is that we shrunk down the key components into ASICs. So part of how you make things more compact and cost-effective cost is by being able to shrink it into an ASIC or something similar. Um, you had also asked on verticals getting traction. So I would mm. say in the case of Alice and Bob, they, they represent something that's really um, resonating with with the market in terms of bosonic modes. So a lot of these bosonic modes are, are ways to do efficient quantum error correction. So I'm sure your listen, listeners are all aware that noise is a big problem in quantum and that quantum error correction is essential for uh, change the world applications. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the more har quantum hardware efficient approaches to that is by using bosonic modes. So that just means that you're using, rather than just using a qubit that has two levels, you're using multiple levels. Uh, by having those multiple levels, you can handle redundancy more efficiently. So a lot of what they need is something that is a very stable and precise frequency because any frequency jitter or deviations causes noise in their system. And that's something that is really taken hold in general. Uh, our solution is a great fit for superconducting qubits and, and spin qubits. Those are among the leading platforms out there. Right. Um, and I'm really excited to, to get more success stories out there because being on the inside, I get to see what's going to happen, you know, six to 12 months in the future. And it's, it's going to be really good news. Yeah. No, thank you for sharing that. I, I want to shift gears and, and talk about a topic that's near and dear to my heart, which is workforce. And I want to get your take on the challenges facing a company like Keysight and particularly, you know, the Keysight Quantum uh, organization in finding talent. So how do you go about recruiting for your company? Do you have affiliations with universities? And then secondarily, are there specific roles in disciplines that are harder to fill than others? So I definitely won't claim that we have a secret sauce to make. <laughs> workforce development easy. Okay. Um, I would say that again, we're leveraging really good practices. So for instance, as a company, there are about 25 universities alone in the US that are labeled as um, high priority for recruitment. So we have at least one 
recruitment engagement per year at, at those kind of universities. Uh, so you can think of any of these universities have a career fair and um, we're dedicated to going there. And it's kind of funny because I know when one of these have happened because all of a sudden I start getting resumes sent my way. Um, <laughs> For well, us that's in good. QES, that's a good sign. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I would say the other good sign is that usually they're pretty close to being on the mark. So it's not as though it's we're just getting somebody that is quasi interested in quantum. A lot of right. times, uh, even at the undergraduate level, you know, I'm seeing CVs and resumes that the people have an intern intern uh, experience doing quantum, very relevant at either one of the big companies or a national lab, uh, and they're looking for what other options are out there. We also, for recruiting, are pretty engaged in uh, quantum fairs in particular. So we sponsored uh, one of the quantum fairs for Curica in the spring. Uh, mm -hmm. We've done some of the US and Europe quantum fairs, and that's just another great opportunity for us to, to try and find people because Recruiting is never done. It's something that's always persistent because nothing is, no one person is a high guarantee of coming to your company. Uh, and then the other thing is that you never know when you're going to need uh, a new area. So you also asked, are, yeah. are there areas that are easier to hire into than others? I would say quantum physicists are hard to hire just because they're in high demand. Having people with business experience and experience in quantum is also hard to hire into just because it's still so nascent. Things that are easier to hire into are things that are much more closer to what Keysight has a lot of expertise in, which is things like FPGA programming. Uh, we have a really great network for hiring into that. But even software developers for us has been challenging to hire just because uh, a lot of the software developers that we've interviewed are kind of comparing Keysight and quantum versus things like finance and banking. Um, mm -hmm. So for them, the the application, at least some of the time, does not matter as much, and they're really just looking for the best compensation package, and that makes it a little bit hard. So part of quantum is you need to find people that are believers in the cause. Yeah. So speaking of believers in the cause, we're coming to the end of our conversation, Eric. Thank you so much. I want to end the podcast by asking you again, sort of opening and closing with waxing philosophic, but getting you to share your vision of where you think quantum and quantum computing, quantum information science might be in say three to five years. And just your take on what kind of impact it's going to have uh, more broadly and how we live and work. So I appreciate you asking an easy question to end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so in terms of where I think we'll be in three to five years. So when I, worked at Fermilab, this is an unofficial summary of the US's stance on quantum, was that they kind of saw the decade that we're living in right now as us figuring out what it is and when quantum will be useful. And I still have that resonate with me very strongly. So in three to five years, I think that we will have a very good idea of when quantum technologies will be useful and what they will be useful in. So this week alone, uh, Quantinium announced a record in quantum volume, as well as there was a paper that hit the archive from IBM on a provably beneficial quantum machine learning algorithm mm -hmm. that I haven't had time to, to digest because there's been a really good back and forth on Psyrate 
on whether or not they demonstrated advantage. So my understanding, which your audience, I please ask their forgiveness if I just haven't had time to fully think this through, but my understanding is that they have something that they believe is provably useful. So things like the variational quantum eigensolver is still useful question mark. Um, and I don't believe that they've demonstrated utility yet. So a lot of what I'm seeing as challenges is people, the quantum computer manufacturers are still at early stages where they're trying to get a very good track record and history of their innovation cycle. So if you think of like Moore's Law scaling, um, you know, that started 1977 and it's not as though it was predicted well before there was any sort of industry. So I think over the next three to five years, we're just going to get more data from more companies and it's going to have us make, let's say more, more robust predictions on how quickly different quantum technologies will adapt and evolve. Uh, where I think that these will be useful are in first areas that have quantum mechanics as kind of the saffron of the meal and not the rice. So there's some part of it that has a quantum mechanical interaction that's really hard to solve. Um, things that have been kind of bandied around are things like nitrogenase protein folding. Uh, you know, when I was at Lawrence Livermore, I really thought high energy density science. So like plasma physics and fusion would be kind of an early area. I waffle on that now because mm -hmm. the, the challenge is, you know, in part, is a field really well set up for something and then how many people are working on it. Yeah. So it's kind of like you might have 10 times more people working on um, energy and material than you do in, in, in fusion energy science. So it's like hard to predict there. Yeah. But those are kind of my thoughts. What about yeah. yourself? Well, no, I, th I mean, I think it's going to certainly, I mean, I've heard it described as the most amazing technology humans have ever created, right? But I like your more sort of pragmatic approach, which is in three to five years, we'll have more data to make predictions about what might happen in three to five years after that. <laughs> I mean, I think that, again, it's uh, it's iterative. I think as with any emerging technology, you know, it gets ad adopted and advanced and uh, incorporated incrementally across, uh, you know, business, business and society. I mean, the big pieces of it. I like Lawrence Gassman, the president of IQT Research, said recently he thinks that more of sort of the picks and shovels parts of quantum information science will be where traction and profit, right, uh, will be generated in the near term. So, but I think it's very exciting, again, at a meta level. Oh, yeah, I'm incredibly excited about it. So I, I'm early career enough that I could have gone into a different area, but um, I've had enough, let's say, wisdom imparted to me by people that used to work with folks like Richard Feynman that, you know, this is really a very unique time historically. And I am super optimistic of the future. I guess I'm just a little bit leery on, on the timescales. And I do agree with uh, the assessment of things that have a practical reality. So, you know, a, a demonstrated proof commercial viability will be things that kind of get traction. So kind of some advice I had been given on how to win arguments was uh, show results. So I, I think that there's a lot of truth in that and, and that the quantum technology that shows results has high adoption will be something that helps drive the field forward. Yeah. Well, Eric, thank you so much. Um, I want to invite people to follow you and the company on LinkedIn. 
I'm going to point listeners to the website. Probably the easiest way to find it is to search on Keysight Plus Quantum. Um, I looked you up, and you guys are on uh, Twitter, Keysight Q on Twitter, and there's some videos on YouTube. So again, thanks very much. I really enjoyed our conversation. Likewise. Hope you have a great day. Thanks again, Eric, for joining me today, and thanks to all of you for listening. Please share this broadcast on your social media channels to increase the impact of my conversation with Eric. Uh, Learn more about the upcoming Inside Quantum Technology event we have scheduled for October 25th through 27. The focus is on quantum cybersecurity. For more information and to register, go to iqtevent.com slash fall. Listen to my other podcast episodes if you haven't already. Please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. And thank you for listening. This has been a production of Inside Quantum Technology. You've been listening to the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology. For more information on this episode or other topics relating to quantum technology, visit InsideQuantumTechnology.com.